Well, hey, welcome to First Church. So glad you guys are here worshiping with us. And we have family this morning that meets out at Stone Canyon, as well as others who will join us later online. So if you would, put your hands together and welcome them into our time of study here today. Well, a few years ago, my mamma, my dad's mom, passed away, and I was able to get this. This was her oil lamp. She actually had this as a child. She was a little girl. She kept it throughout adulthood, and then when she passed away, it was passed down to me. And I cherish this. It's one of the few things I have from her, and I keep it in a shelf in my home office and never really use it, never lie to or anything, but just keep it to kind of remember her. And the other day, I was in my home office working, and Alex, my son, came in, and he noticed this, I think, for the very first time, and he pointed at it, and he said, Daddy, what is that? I said, well, this is an oil lamp. And so I got it down, I showed it to him, and I explained to him how it worked, that you put oil in it, and there's a wick you got to trim and move and light it and so forth. And I explained to him how it worked, and he looked at me, kind of had this puzzled look on his face, and he said, Daddy, how come they just didn't turn on a light switch? And I was just like, well, that's not how it worked back then. That's not, I bet you they wish that that's how it worked, but that's not how it worked. And your great-grandmother, she studied by this lamp. I mean, she had to do her homework with this lamp. That's how she was able to see at night. And you could just tell he was shocked. Uh, he just couldn't believe that something like that had happened. And it hit me in that moment that change is just part of life. No matter if you like it or not, change is going to happen, and change can happen pretty quickly. I mean, the world that my son is growing up in is a very different world than the one that my grandmother grew up in. Change happens whether we like it or not, and change happens pretty quickly. And to further prove that point, I want to ask, how many of you guys know what this right here is? Anybody seen one of these before, if I can pick it up? Anybody know what this is? It's a record, isn't it? Now, I hear they're coming back in style, but years ago, this is how everyone listened to music. You listened to a record on a record player, and eventually they had different size records, like a 45. You may have had one of these. Allison's uncle tells me that he had a record player that played 45s in his car. I'm not sure how that worked driving down the road, but apparently he had one in his car. I don't think he's lying to me about that, but still, this is how everybody listened to music at one time, but pretty soon, records were replaced by... These. Now, what's this? An A track, right? An A track cassette. How many guys listened to A track cassettes at one time? Let's see your hands. Man, there's a lot of you. You people are old. No, I'm just kidding. That's a joke. Well, a little bit. But I actually never listened to one of these. I know what they are. Uh, my parents had them. They had a stack of them that I think we sold at a yard sale at one point. But I never actually listened to these because these were soon replaced by. These, what are these? Compact cassettes, right? We just called them cassettes. And when I started listening to music, this is what I listened to. I had a Walkman that you would put a cassette in. I had a boombox. If, if you don't know what a boombox is, look it up online. You'll, you can Google it. But you had these in your cars or whatever, tape players. And I grew up listening to cassettes. But by the time I hit middle school, high school, everybody was listening to these. What are these? CDs, right? You guys know what these are, and probably all of us have listened to them at some time or another, but these have now been re replaced. Very few people listen to CDs anymore uh, because they were quickly replaced by iPod shuffles and MP3 players and other similar devices, but people even don't listen to these anymore. Now you just get music off your phone, off your computer, off your laptop. Maybe you have, you know, music through your cable box or whatever, but a lot of people today, they just listen to music through 
an Amazon Echo or an Amazon Dot or a similar device. And these things are just great because you can actually talk to them and ask Alexa, who's inside this little uh, Amazon thing apparently, you could actually ask Alexa to play a song for you and she'll do it, whatever song you want. And this has become something that's so normal around my house that my little two-year-old daughter knows to talk to Alexa. Now Alexa doesn't always understand her. We don't understand her most of the time, but still she tries to talk to Alexa. And the other day she was trying to get Alexa to play one of her favorite songs. She loves the theme song to Beauty and the Beast. And so really it's just a bunch of gibberish when she talks to Alexa. But you can hear the word beast in there when she says it, when she asks for Alexa to play the song. And so we filmed her doing this. And take a look at this video clip real fast. I love, how she, I love how she laughs at the end. Isn't that great? Now, there's no wonder Alexa didn't understand her. I couldn't understand her either. I got beast out of there, but that's about it. But you know, my grandmother, Addie's great-grandmother, probably could not have imagined a day when you would speak to a machine and the machine would play a song for you. That was just unheard of. I mean, my, my mamma, she died in 1997. And in 1997, there weren't smartphones. Social media wasn't even heard of, probably wasn't even dreamed of. But yet today, those are common. They're everywhere, right? They dominate our culture. It's amazing how quickly change happens. And whether we like it or not, change is just part of life. The creator of Calvin and Hobbes once wrote, Do you know what's weird? Day by day, nothing seems to change. But pretty soon, everything's different. And I think we get exactly what he's saying. Change is just part of life. And we don't see it immediately, but you look back, it's like, wow, things have really changed. Somebody told me the other day that the only constant in life is change. And I think there's some truth to that. Every generation tends to do things a little bit differently. And that's not necessarily a bad or good thing. It's just the way it is. Every generation tends to do things a little bit differently. But as much as everything changes, there's something that never changes. And that's God's love for us. That's his heart for us, for you and me. In Psalm 100, verse 5, the scripture says, For the Lord is good. His unfailing love continues forever. And his faithfulness continues to each generation. You see, God created us because he wanted to have a loving relationship with us. But we rebelled against that relationship. We chose sin over him. And because we chose sin, we were quickly entrapped by that sin, enslaved by sin and its consequences. And God could have given up on us and said, hey, that's what they chose. They didn't want me and that's fine. But God refused to give up on us. Instead, he's been working ever since we first chose to rebel against him in order to get us back. That's what he wants more than anything else. And I believe that's the story of the human race. And really, that's what the Bible is all about. You may never thought about it like this, but the Bible is one continuous story of God's love for people and his ongoing pursuit of those far from him. 
And I'm afraid sometimes we lose that overall picture about what life is all about and really the overall theme of what Scripture is all about. See, sometimes when we study an isolated passage or an isolated section of Scripture like the Exodus narrative, which we've been studying over the past few weeks, we say, well, yeah, that's a great story. And we look at a story like Exodus and say, hey, it's a great story about freedom, how God saw his people enslaved and he wanted to set them free. And that's just a great story about freedom. And what we miss is that story as well as the other stories in Scripture are really just subplots to a large larger story that's being told. You see, the theme that I believe God wants for us to understand, the theme that life is really all about, is that he wants to set us free. That's the story of the Exodus. It's the story of the entire Bible. And for that matter, it's the story of the human race. Whether it's pain, sin, brokenness, our past, or whatever else, God doesn't want anything or anyone holding us hostage keeping us from embracing our full identity as his beloved children. And that's one of the primary reasons why Jesus came. Jesus says in Luke 4, verse 18, that he, speaking of his Father, he sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed, what? Free. You see, the story of freedom, the story of God setting his people free, is not just the story of the exodus. It's a story of Scripture. It's the story of the human race. That no matter where you come from or where you've been, God wants to set you free so that you can fully embrace your identity as His child. God's story of freedom is ongoing. And it continues today because we are living in the age of Jesus. And what that means for us is this. If God's story is ongoing, that means we have a place in His story. And before you leave here today, there's one truth I want you to wrap your mind around. God has a place for you in his story of freedom, in his story of rescue, in his story of redemption. The question is, do you want to have part, have a part in his story? Because I think that's the question that our generation needs to ask. And I believe that's the question that the generation that came after Moses needed to ask as well. See, like I said, over the past few weeks, we've been studying the Exodus narrative in the Old Testament. And by this point, you guys know what took place. See, basically, the Israelite people, they were enslaved in Egypt, and God saw their oppression, so he sent a leader to be their deliverer. That leader's name was Moses. And Moses appeared on the scene, and God did miraculous stuff through him so that his people could be set free. And so God provided for the people and did a lot of incredible things like parting the Red Sea and other miracles. And eventually, God's people were free and were able to come to the promised land. But over Over and over again, even though God took care of his people, provided for them, they continued to rebel against him. Till finally it all comes to a head on the edge of the promised land. God wants his people to enter the land of Canaan, the promised land. We talked about that last week. And the people refused to go in. Why? Because they were so used to slavery, so accustomed to slavery that they just kept going back to it. And it's not that they didn't want to go into the promised land and experience this new life that God wanted them to experience. They actually wanted to go back to Egypt. They were willing to be slaves again. And so God says, okay, if you don't want to go into the promised land, this land that I want to give you, fine. I'll still be with you. I'll still look after you. I'll still protect you. But you won't inherit it. You won't get the promised land. I'll wait for a new generation that will go where I want them to go. And that's exactly what happens. God waits for Moses' generation to die off, and then a new generation comes on the scene. And in this new generation, there are only two men left who actually were around 
when the previous generation refused to go into the promised land, a guy named Caleb and a guy named Joshua, they were the two spies who still wanted to go into the promised land when no one else did. And so God appears to Joshua and he says, listen, everybody from Moses' generation is gone. Now I want you to lead the people and this is what I want you to do. I want you to lead them into the promised land. And look at what God says to Joshua when he first calls him to be the new leader of the people now that Moses is gone. Joshua 1 verse 1 through verse 2. It says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, who is Moses' aide, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. Now before we go any further, I want you to notice five key words. The first five words that God ever says to Joshua when he calls him to be the leader of the people. And look at the first five words that God says. Verse two, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now don't blow by those words. That's not insignificant historical detail. Those words had huge implications for both Joshua and the people of Israel at the time, Joshua's generation. See, Moses had been the spiritual and national leader of the people for decades, for over 40 years. And this is the same Moses that God spoke to in a burning bush. This is the same Moses that at one point threw his shepherd's staff down before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and that staff turned into a snake. This is the same Moses who stood up to Pharaoh and said, if you don't listen to God, then plagues are going to come upon Egypt and you're going to regret it. And those plagues came. This was the same Moses that held up his staff and the Red Sea parted and the Israelites walked across on dry ground. This is the same Moses who cried out to God on behalf of the people and God sent manna from heaven and water from a rock. This is the same Moses who received the Ten Commandments. Moses had a unique, special relationship with God. He served as the intercessor, the mediator between God and God's people. And in Exodus 33, verse 11, it says of Moses that the Lord would speak to him face to face as a man speaks with his friend. God and Moses had a unique relationship. And now Moses, this great man of God who has led the people for decades, is dead. Can you imagine being in Joshua's shoes? Can you imagine being the one who has to take over the leadership of the people after Moses? And not only that, God is asking Joshua to do what Moses couldn't get the people to do. God basically says, hey, Moses couldn't get the people to go into the promised land, but I want you to be able to do it. Really? The people are getting ready to face giants that live in that land. Who's to say that the next generation isn't going to be scared too and refuse to go in? Not only that, Joshua's probably thinking, God, I'm no Moses. I saw what you did with Moses. I saw how close you guys were. I'm no Moses. This is a time of uncertainty for the Israelite people. Joshua is untested as a leader. The people's faithfulness is untested. It's a new generation now. This is probably one of the biggest times of uncertainty in Israel's history. And God turns to Joshua and says, I want you to be the leader. I want you to be the guy that I use now. I'm sure that Joshua was nervous, concerned, and probably scared to death. I would have been. And I think that's why God says what he says next to Joshua in verses 5 through 6. If you want to jump on down in chapter 1. God promises to Joshua, no one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, 
so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Now, did you notice what God says to Joshua? Be strong and courageous. Why does he say that? Because Joshua's scared right now. And God is basically saying, don't be scared, don't be frightened. You can do this. And the reason why you can do this is because as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. In other words, God is basically saying, Joshua, my story, it's bigger than Moses. This story that I'm writing for the world it's bigger than one man. It's bigger than just Moses. This story that I'm writing for your people, it's bigger than just one generation. What I'm doing is much bigger than one man or one generation. My story of freedom didn't end with Moses. It is continuing on, and now it includes you, and it includes your generation. And I'm asking you to do what the previous generation wouldn't do. But you can do it if you're willing and if the people are willing, because as I was with Moses, I will be with you. And I wonder if God doesn't want to say the exact same thing to our generation of his people today. I've said before, I grew up in church. I mean, my family attended church just about every Sunday. And I grew up knowing all the stories in the Bible, I was what you would call, what we call around here, a Buick, a brought-up-in-church kid, a Buick. I knew all the stories in the Bible. I mean, I could tell you as a kid about Daniel in the lion's den or David and Goliath or Noah in the flood or, for that matter, Moses and the parting of the Red Sea. I could tell you about Jesus walking on water or feeding the multitudes or healing a lame man, rising from the dead. I could tell you all the stories in Scripture. But, you know, my view of God, I think, was inaccurate because I kind of had this view of God that God was active and busy and doing a lot of incredible stuff back then, back in Bible times. But now, not so much. It's not that I didn't believe God existed. I very much did. And I very much believe that we could still get salvation through his son today, that God was active in giving us salvation. I believe that. But God doing incredible things, God actively working, I think I had an inaccurate view of God. And at some point, the more I studied Scripture and the, more I, and the closer I got to God, at some point I realized that God's story isn't finished yet. That God is still working to accomplish His purpose of freeing the world from the hold that sin has on it. And that God is still carrying out His purpose through the mission of Jesus Christ and now I get to be part of that story. I realized that the same God who was with Moses and who was with Joshua, who was with Elijah, who was with David, who was with Peter, who was with Paul, who was with Timothy and Barnabas and all the rest, that same God is still on the throne and he is on our side. I realized that the story of God isn't finished yet. And now I have a chance, I have the opportunity. And so do you to be part of God's ongoing story of freedom. Freedom for the world. I hope that before you leave here today, you walk away knowing God has a place for you in his story. I said last week, and I believe this to be true, 
that since the creation of the world, God's been working throughout history to get us to this moment in time so that his freedom becomes the story of our generation. I believe that everything God has been doing has been working so that a generation will rise up who wants to make his story of freedom the story of our generation. But for that to happen, it's on us. We have to decide whether or not we're going to pick up that story, whether we're going to be a part of that story and let God work in our generation like he wants to. Guys, it doesn't matter if you're 17 or 70, if you're 35 or 105, you're not here just to take up space. You're not here just to pay the rent. You're not here to sit on the sidelines. You're here to be part of God's ongoing story to save this world, his story of rescue, redemption, and freedom. And God wanted Joshua's generation to realize that. And he wants us to realize that as well. So Joshua listens to everything God says. And then he goes to the people and he explains God's plan. And says, hey, you know how God wanted our forefathers to go into the promised land? He still wants us to do it. And we're still going to face the same obstacles. And it's going to be challenging. But God says he's going to be with us. And then he turns to the people to hear their response. And you know how the people of Israel in Joshua's day responded? Joshua 1 verse 16. Whatever you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Now Moses went to his generation and said, hey, this is what God wants us to do. And they said, "Uh uh-uh, not going to do it. There are giants in that land. We're not going to go face those giants. There's no way. We're going to head back to Egypt. No way, Moses. End of story. But Joshua says the same thing to his generation. Gives them God's plan. And you know how his generation responds? Whatever the Lord says, we'll do it. Wherever God wants us to go, we'll go. Why? What changed? You see, I think Joshua's generation had seen their fathers and grandfathers wandering for decades in the wilderness, and they were tired of wandering. They were ready to see God do incredible things in their midst. And because they were ready to see God do incredible things, they were willing to follow God wherever he wanted to take them, that's exactly what happens. God does things within that generation that he didn't do in the previous generation because they weren't willing. And from the earliest moments of Joshua's leadership, we see God doing two incredible miracles to prove that he is with them and he is on their side. And the first miracle takes place at the crossing of the Jordan River. You see, the first obstacle that the Israelites in Joshua's day had to face was the Jordan River. And the Jordan River, um, it kind of expands a distance of about 70 miles. And if you look at it on a map, if you look at a map of Israel, what you will notice is it starts with the Sea of Galilee in the north of Israel, and then it goes all the way down and it ends in the Dead Sea in the south. And like I said, that's an expanse of about 70 miles where the Jordan River, it kind of snakes and moves back and forth. But here's the thing, the Jordan River starts at an elevation elevation of 700 feet and then it descends to uh, 1200 feet below sea level and so in the springtime when the ice melts the Jordan River is pretty dangerous there's a lot of rushing water in fact I have a video of what the Jordan River looks like during this time of year when the ice melts if you want to take a look at it on the screen and you can see this is a treacherous thing I mean I was showing this before services this morning to our our band we were going through all the videos we were going to show during service and one of our band members said that scares me to death can you imagine trying to cross that body of water can you imagine trying to cross that river this is what the Jordan River would have looked like at the time when God says to Joshua you and all these white people need 
need to cross it. We're not talking about just Joshua going across it. We're not talking about just Joshua and his key leaders or military men going across it. We're talking about over one million people trying to cross the Jordan River. It was assumed that if you tried to tackle that thing, a lot of people were going to die. And God says, listen, you can do it because I'm with you and I have a plan and here's my plan. Joshua 3 verse 8 and then down to verse 13. God says, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Put your feet in the river. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap, stand up like a wall. And you know what the people say? That's crazy. We're not putting our feet in the river. No, that's not what they said. The people in Joshua's day said, okay. And they went and they put their feet in the Jordan River. They obeyed God. And you know what happened? As soon as the priest's feet touched the water, just as God said, the Jordan River stood up like a wall and the people were able to cross on dry ground. Now, we talk a lot in church about how Moses parted the Red Sea. God does something very similar in Joshua or through Joshua's ministry and Joshua's day. And we don't talk a lot about that. But what is God doing here? He is saying, hey, as I was with Moses, I am with you. But I want you to pay careful attention to something. God didn't stop the flow of the river until the people first put their feet in the water. In other words, God didn't move until the people moved. Now, God didn't have to wait for the people to put their feet in the water for the flow of the water to stop. God could have just, you know, stopped the Jordan River on his own, right? Why did he wait? Because he was trying to teach them something. He was trying to teach them that he responds to obedience. And I wonder today if God isn't waiting to move in a powerful way because we're not yet willing to go in the direction he wants us to go. See, God doesn't need our abilities, but he uses our obedience. And sometimes in the church today, when we look at our culture and we see, you know, how people are living without hope and purpose, we just kind of scratch our heads and I wish we could do more. So if only we had the right resources or the right leadership or if we had the right gifts and abilities and talents in our church, then maybe we can make a difference in this world. And God's looking at us and saying, I don't need your resources. I don't need your abilities. I don't need your talents and your gifts. All I want is your obedience. When you make yourself available to me, I will do incredible things in your midst. This past week, Alice and I, we were meeting with our life group here at First Church, and we were having a discussion about the sermon. In fact, that's what we talk about most of the time in our small group. We talk about the sermon from Sunday because you guys know there's a follow-up study, and so we kind of study the sermon in greater detail, and that's always awkward for me because I'm the one that preaches the sermons, and so to talk about my sermon in our life group is a little awkward, a little uncomfortable, but we do it, and we end up having pretty good discussion anyway. Uh, no one ever tells me I did a bad job, so uh, that's nice, but uh, the other night we were talking about the sermon from last week and about how God calls us to take risks for him and uh, to make a difference in this world for him that's what a lot of this series has been about and one of the couples in our small group they spoke up and they said you know sometimes I just wish that we could do more for God I just don't feel like we're making an impact like we should and we want to make a difference but you know we're just not sure if we can do the incredible things that we see other people doing for God and right as they said that another guy in our small group spoke up he interrupted them and he interrupted them in a good way and he said I just want to stop you right there 
you guys volunteer every single week in our children's ministry upstairs. And they do. This couple, they come to our 930 service and they sit in adult worship because they want to get fed. They want to worship together uh, with the body of Christ. Then they stay an extra hour and they go upstairs and they volunteer just about every Sunday in our children's ministry. And he said, you guys do that every week. And he said, my daughter has you guys for leaders. And she comes home week after week excited about church, excited about Jesus. She can quote the memory verse of the week and she knows the Bible stories that you guys talk about. Not only that, she's telling her friends about Jesus and inviting them to church. She is pumped about Jesus and I see her life being changed partly because of what you guys are doing. And he looked at him, he said, I'm not fussing at you. He said, don't ever think that God isn't using you in incredible ways. And this is a grown man who got teary-eyed and he said, you are impacting my daughter's life and the lives of so many other children. God is using you in incredible ways. See, sometimes we may look at ourselves and say, we don't have a lot to offer. What can God do with somebody like me? If we just will make ourselves available, God will use us. He will use us in incredible ways. We will impact lives for the sake of his son. See, all throughout scripture, God doesn't, typically use the most talented, the most gifted, the guy who has the most resources, the most influence or power. You know who God uses? Those who make themselves available. Happens over and over again. And so obeying God is what we're called to do. And sometimes obeying God is scary. Sometimes it's even risky. But what I have discovered is when we take risks for God, he shows up in big ways. Now, when I say take risks for God, I'm not talking about doing things that are spiritually irresponsible. I don't mean that. I simply mean doing what he's asking us to do even when it's not comfortable, even when there's an easier option out there. And I think our church is known for being a church that take, takes risk. I mean, I think we proved this this past Christmas Eve. We were a church that decided together that we weren't gonna have our traditional Christmas Eve services like we have in years past. And on Christmas Eve, instead of having traditional Christmas Eve services, we came together and we packed meals and we took those meals to people in need throughout the 918, throughout our community. And we had hundreds and hundreds of volunteers show up to take these meals to people, to pack meals and take them. And it was an awesome sight. And God was definitely at work on that day. Now, we still celebrate Jesus' birth, but we had all of our Christmas services on Christmas Sunday. And Christmas Eve, we went out and we were the church. We wanted to be the church. And I have shared that with different uh, people in ministry, guys who preach at some pretty large churches. And I said, hey, we didn't have traditional Christmas Eve services. Instead, we went out and served our community. And those guys have said to me, well, that was risky. You all really did that? Like, they're shocked that we did that. And I even had one guy said, I bet it flopped, didn't it? I said, no, it didn't. I mean, we had so many volunteers show up, we didn't have enough jobs for everybody. And let me tell you something, when we do something like that again, we're gonna have enough jobs for everybody. We're not gonna underestimate God again like that. But the reason why I think that was so successful is because we're a church that takes risk. Now, I'm not saying that to pat ourselves on the back. I'm saying that because if you're new here today, that's what type of church we are. We're a church that takes risks. And that doesn't mean that we don't use godly wisdom to make sure that the risks that we're taking are what he wants us to do. But we take risks, and we take risks because we take our faith seriously. And if the risk involves helping others the way God has helped us, we're in. That's what we want to do. In Joshua's day, the easier thing to do was to just not put their feet in the Jordan River and stay on the safe side. 
But they did what was dangerous, what was risky, because they trusted God. And let me ask you, what incredible thing is God waiting to do in your life? Is God waiting to do in the life of our church if we would just put our feet in the water? If we would just believe God and trust him? Now the second miracle that God does to prove that he's with this generation happened at the Battle of Jericho. See, once the people cross the Jordan River, the first city that God wants them to take is the city of Jericho. And Jericho, at this time, was one of the oldest cities in the world. And there's a reason why Jericho had lasted for so long, because it was well fortified. There were two major walls that surrounded the city. One wall was six feet wide, and it was 25 feet tall. The second wall was 12 feet wide and about 25 feet tall. And there were soldiers that were on the top of these walls that were on lookout. There was a well-trained army on the inside. Jericho had a strong military presence. The Israelites, they didn't have any trained soldiers. And God says, I want you to go take that city. And other nations, other people groups had tried to attack Jericho. It had failed time and time and time again. And God says, you can do it. And I have a plan. Here's my plan. Joshua, I want you to send in a couple spies into Jericho to kind of check everything out. And when you get there, I have a person on the inside. I got to, somebody's going to help you out. And Joshua's like, great, God, you got a, you got a man on the inside. And God's like, oh, no, it's not exactly a man. It's a woman, her name's Rahab, and she's a prostitute. And I'm sure Josh's like, huh, what, what are you talking about? God's like, trust me. So they send the two spies in, they meet up with Rahab. Rahab helps them out, protects them, even risks her life so that they can escape. But what they discover is Rahab the prostitute, she fears God more than they do. She's heard the stories about how God delivered his people from Egypt, and she has this huge respect for God. She wants to be a worshiper of God. And what's interesting is, years later, when the New Testament is being written, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 11 records different examples of faith from the Old Testament. And some people call this the Faith Hall of Fame because men like Abraham are listed and uh, Moses and Elijah and David and others, all these great men of faith that we've heard of. But you know who else is listed in the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11? Rahab the prostitute. Not only that, when you go over to Matthew chapter 1 and look at the genealogy of Jesus, do you know who's in Jesus' family line? Rahab the prostitute. That's right. Jesus' great, 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 and so on grandmother was a prostitute, a former prostitute. You know what that tells us? God can rewrite anyone's story. And I believe that's something that many in our generation need to hear today. Maybe that's something that you need to hear today. I'm convinced there are more people in our generation that need to hear that than are willing to tell it. See, it doesn't matter where you come from. What matters is where you're willing to let God take you. And so Rahab, she becomes part of God's story. And she protects these spies. They escape. They go back to Joshua and the people and give a report of the city. And as they're giving this report, the people quickly realize, we don't have the military strength or might or strategy to take Jericho. And God says, that's okay, Joshua. I have a plan. I have a secret weapon for you. And Joshua's probably like, okay, cool, God, you got a secret weapon. That's awesome. What, what is it exactly? Is it a fleet of chariots or a massive catapult system or battering rams, spear, swords? Okay, God, what is it? And God says, it's none of those things. It's this. Now, do you know what this is? This is a shofar horn, basically a trumpet. God says, I got a bunch of trumpets for y'all to use. And I'm sure Joshua's probably thinking, what are we going to do with this? You people of Jericho, you better behave or we'll 
blow our trumpet at you. I mean, Joshua's probably thinking, God, you got to be kidding me. You want us to stand out there and say, we'll huff and puff and blow your walls down. You guys thought that came from the big bad wolf. It didn't. It came from Joshua in the Valley of Jericho. You guys better shape up. Don't make me blow our horns at you. Joshua's probably thinking, God, this sounds crazy. This sounds nuts. But here's the thing. God specializes in using unconventional means to accomplish his purposes. God is intentionally stacking the deck against himself to prove the only way this is going to happen is if I'm in it. And I wonder today, are we praying prayers that are so big that when they're answered, people say the only way that prayer were answered, the only way that that happened was because God was in it. Are we as a church doing something so big that there's no way it could get done unless God is involved? So what does God say? God says, here's my strategy. I want you on the first day to march around the city of Jericho one time, blow your horns. Joshua's like, okay, what then? Day two, march around the city, blow your horns. Okay, what then? Day three, day four, day five, day six, march around the city one time, blow your horns. Joshua's like, what are we doing day seven? God says, day seven, I want you to march around the city seven times and then blow your horns. And Joshua's like, oh yeah, that'll do it, God. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, wonderful plan. No, Joshua does it. And I bet the people of Jericho were laughing at the Israelites. Uh, Somebody, uh, I know a guy who preaches on the West Coast, and he sent me a couple years ago a picture of a newspaper clipping about a robbery that took place, and I'm going to put it up on the screen. Uh, And this is what it says. It says, six men, their faces covered with red bandanas, got out of the Cherokee carrying a knife, a baseball bat, a billy club, and a rolling pin, said Davis, who's the witness, age 20. I knew when I saw the rolling pin that something bad was going to go down, Davis said. And I wonder if that's what the the people at Jericho were thinking. When we saw those trumpets, we knew something bad was going to go down. No, that's not what they were thinking. They were probably laughing. But the people of Jericho, they do what God says because they trusted God. They believed him. It may have looked foolish, crazy, even disastrous, but the people believed God. And Joshua 6 verse 20 tells us what happened. It says, when the trumpet sounded, the people shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So every man charged straight in, and they took the city. You see, because the people believed God, God did something in their generation that no other generation had ever seen before. And Joshua's generation was known for being a generation of courage. And what I have discovered is courage is not the absence of fear, but it's having the faith to move forward in the midst of fear. I'm sure the people, they had their fears. But see, courage is not the absence of fear. It's having the faith to move forward in the midst of fear. And I wonder, does that describe our generation? Because we are here for a reason. God is calling us to do something great, and that's to unleash a revolution of his love on the 918 and beyond. And that means we're going to have to make sacrifices. That means we're going to have to step us out of our comfort zones. That means at times we're going to have to get our hands dirty. That means we're going to have to do some odd things like put our feet in the Jordan River and blow trumpets. But if we're willing to do it, if we have the faith to move forward, rivers will part and walls will come down. See, the reason why Joshua's generation was able to do what they did was because they believed five little words. Remember what God said to Joshua in Joshua 1 verse 5? As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Joshua's generation believed those five words. 
And I wonder if we believe those five words today. Because it's interesting, right after um, God says, I will be with you, he goes on to say, never will I leave you, never will, will I forsake you. Those words, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, they appear again, and they appear again in the book of Hebrews. And the author of Hebrews writing to the church, writing to us, says, remember God has promised, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. What's the author of Hebrews saying to us? Just as God was with Moses and with Joshua and everybody else, he is with his church today. So do we believe God is with us? As a sign that you do, what I would like to do as we close here is I want to give some statements, and I just want you to say out loud with me after I give these statements, those five words, I will be with you. Can we practice that? Can you say it with me together when I point to you? Here we go. I will be with you. So when it feels like you're up against the wall and there's no way out, remember God has promised, I will be with you. Let me hear you. When the future looks scary and uncertain and you wonder if you can keep on going, remember God has said, I will be with you. When it looks like darkness is winning and you feel broken, alone, or trapped, remember God has promised, I will be with you. And when we look at our present culture and we see a generation that lacks hope and needs purpose and you wonder, can we make a difference as a church? Can I make a difference as a follower of Jesus? Don't get discouraged. Remember the words of our Lord. He has promised us. I will be with you. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. That's the promise he gave Joshua. That's the promise he gave us. Let's trust him. Let's believe him. We'll see rivers parted and walls come down. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for today and for this time we've had to meet together as your people. And I pray if there are any walls at all or rivers that are trapping people today, that, Father, you will remind them that you can set them free. May they just trust you and turn their lives over to your son, and he can give them the freedom that they're looking for. Be with our church. May we be a church that takes risks for you, and when we do, you will do incredible things in our midst. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, church?